Good morning. Well, here we are once again in the book of God's revelation through Jesus to the Apostle John. This morning we're going to take a look at another one of the seven letters. Last week I told you we were going to try to intersperse the letters throughout the series. This may be the only time we do two in a row. <laughs> but we are going to look at a, another letter this morning. Last week in his letter to the Laodiceans, as Colin mentioned earlier, Jesus challenged us to leave our self-sufficient attitudes and approaches to life and to live out of the truth that we desperately need Him, but that we also securely have Him and He has us. And this morning we look at a church that is actually in the complete opposite situation of the one we looked at last week. We look at a church this morning that has been absolutely overcome with its sense of neediness because of the hardship and the suffering that it is enduring. This is the good news of Jesus' surprising path to victory. A path that he now retraces together with his church as he destroys the enemies of Satan and death and suffering from the inside out. And we find it in Jesus' letter to the ancient church of Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. You can find it on page 8 of your bulletin. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews, but they are not. They are instead a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And Father, we pray again this morning, as we always do on every Sunday, that your Spirit enlighten the hearts, that we have enlightened the eyes of our hearts, that we may see and understand your word, that we may grasp its truth we may see ourselves in the passage. We may see our need for you once again. And we may see again that you meet that need. You have met that need through your son. And you continue to meet that need through your son. That he might be glorified. And that in his glorification he may bring glory to you, Father, as he told us was his heart's desire. And so do all these things for your glory and for our blessing and our good. In Jesus' name and by the Spirit. Amen. You can be seated. Well, if the Romans knew anything, they knew all about conquering. And if your armies are going to put a lot of sweat and blood into conquering the entire Mediterranean world, half of Britain and half of southern Europe, well then your poets and your historians, 
They better pony up and work really hard, extra hard, to create a very impressive myth about the past of your great civilization. And so the great Roman poet Virgil, who lived during the reign of Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor, Virgil came up with a great story. A story that stood the test of time and became the national epic of the origin of Rome. The epic story is called the Aeneid, named after the central character in the poem Aeneas. And in telling the Aeneid, Virgil understood something very important. That if you're going to tell an entire nation of fierce and invincible warriors who they are, you better tell them what they want to hear. And generally speaking, fierce warriors like to look in the mirror in the morning and remind themselves that they come from a long line of really fierce warriors. And so Virgil reached way, way back into Mediterranean history and dusted off what's possibly the greatest legend from the ancient world, the Iliad, the Greek poet Homer's most famous story about the great battle before the walled city of Troy. And in the story, the Trojans have the most powerful fortress, the most noble king, and one of the greatest warrior champions in the person of Hector. And so Virgil had no problem with telling the Romans that their great civilization came from a group of strong Trojan warriors who escaped Troy and that this group eventually landed in Italy to found the city of Rome. In the Roman mind, their greatness, their ability to conquer, came from tro- Trojan greatness. In our passage this morning, this epic story of Roman greatness, this perception of their selves as being very offended, and it's under attack. And it's under attack by a very small and powerless group of people who are refusing their patriotic duty. These people made up the church of Smyrna. The second church of seven to receive a letter from Judas. The Smyrnian Christians were being tested with the same exact kind of test that the rest of the churches in their area were facing, the other seven churches of Revelation. The exact same kind of test that you and I face every day, actually. The allure of false gods that appeal to our hearts through promises of security, through promises to escape suffering and promises to remove fear and give peace. But here's the thing about idols and here's the thing about those who worship them. When you refuse to bow down to idols, they like to bring the reverse of their promises. They threaten to take away security. They promise to bring suffering. They threaten all kind of fearful attacks that will give you no peace and only worry. For the seven churches of Asia Minor, what we would call modern-day Turkey, this temptation to compromise with idols came in a form that we all recognize in our culture and in our city and in our neighborhoods as well. It came in an economic, came through economic pressure and it came through social pressure. The economic and social structure of the ancient world was tied to its trade guilds. Trade guilds, there were various industries like weavers and tanners and fishmongers and blacksmiths and bakers. Just about everyone would create a guild, a partnership that existed to protect and kind of advance the interests of their trade. 
They became powerful enough that to be excluded from these guilds meant almost certainly the loss of your business. But the, the guilds also grew into something more than that. They also became kind of like modern-day country clubs and fancy neighborhood swimming pools where those from the same class would gather to socialize and form business relationships and enjoy entertainment together and hang out while the children played together. And all the guilds, like so many of our clubs, they, they may have required certain financial dues to be a part of them, More importantly, for the Roman government, they had civic and religious requirements for their members. And in ancient Rome, as in modern America, your religion and your patriotic duty went together. And so to remain a part of the trade guild and a successful business, you were expected to make the proper sacrifices and to speak the appropriate prayers and liturgy at the festivals that were honoring the trade guild gods for their blessings. And then, above all else, you are expected to confess belief and loyalty to the Roman emperor's deity. Most Greeks and Romans, they thought nothing of it. It's just part of life, part of business, part of being a good patriotic Roman. Jews had been given an exemption from these ceremonies centuries before because of the respect Rome had for the ancient Jewish religion. But for Christians, it was a different matter. They basically had three choices in front of them. They could deny that Jesus was Lord and confess that Caesar was. They could openly confess Christ's sovereignty and suffer for it. Or they could try and compromise to mix devotion to the trade guild with their devotion to their faith. To mix the best that the Christian faith had to offer with the best of the pagan faiths and what they had to offer and their loyalty to the state, all the while seeking to keep their businesses and keep their relationships with the right circle of friends. And it's very possible that the church at Laodicea, which we looked at last week, they might have even chosen this very path to compromise. Not to deny Christ, but not to confess Him alone either in order to keep their wealth, to keep their status in society. And as Colin said, it's the church that Jesus has no words of commendation for. But Smyrna, Smyrna is the opposite. It's the church that Jesus has no words of correction or discipline or rebuke for. It's the church that has fully believed and realized Jesus' words to the disciples from John chapter 16. In this fallen world you will have tribulation. In this fallen world, those of you who know that following me doesn't just mean confessing me in the privacy of your homes, but means that the fullness of my life will change the priorities that you bring to the workplace and the way you relate to the opposite sex and the way you raise your children and the way you worship together with others and the way you relate to the culture around you. All of this will mean that you will have trouble Because the demons behind the idols that call to you every day and the world that's under their spell, they're not going to be content to just sit back and watch. They're going to come for you in a thousand different ways. And so you're going to have trouble. And so the Smyrnian Christians, like the faithful believers of today, knew suffering. 
And you know what Jesus does for them? He does the same thing for them that he does for us. He calls them to long for him. He calls them to long for him. To embrace longing together with hope. And he does this by freeing them from lies and by freeing them from fear. He frees them from lies right from the start in verse 8. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews, but they're not. They're a synagogue of Satan. The Smyrnians were losing their jobs. They're being thrown out of the trade guilds. Feeding their families is becoming harder. Everything in their experience was telling them that they were impoverished. Just like everything in the experience of the wealthy Laodicean Christians told them that they were rich and healthy and had need of nothing. But Jesus tells the truth to both congregations. Laodiceans, you are poor and blind and naked and you need me. Smyrnians, you have me and all of my promises and you are more rich than all the emperors put together. And those who persecute you can't begin to touch your wealth. But the poverty that they feel, just like it is for us, it's more than just a small bank account. It also includes slander. Having your reputation stolen. Being considered simple and stupid and uneducated for being Christians and believing things that sound so ridiculous to a proud world. It includes being falsely accused, being treated unjustly for defending others at school or at work. It will include imprisonment, as Jesus says in verse 10, literal physical imprisonment by Christians throughout our world are going through right now this morning. But it also includes social confinement, unfair discrimination in in educational institutions, exclusion from certain jobs, people that you thought were friends who don't want to be associated with you anymore after they find out what you believe. And I say all this because I know many of you here in this room, in this church, who have suffered many of these things this year. I've heard you talk about them. At school, at work, from acquaintances in your neighborhoods, from roommates. And Jesus steps in and he brings comfort by bringing truth to his people who are hearing lies. Because rarely are we so vulnerable to listening to lies than when we're suffering. The self-righteous Jews in verse 9 who think that they are the true faithful because of their own law-keeping and their own morality. These prideful and ultra-religious are the ones who are actually turning the Christians into the Roman government on a big massive tattletale scheme. And Jesus points out their lies and false righteousness and he says, you know what? Those who are self-righteous either because of their conservative high moral standards or because of their passion for their liberal social causes or because they pride themselves on being so tolerant and non-judgmental, whatever the self-righteousness bar happens to be, whatever it happens to be about, they're not truly related to me. They're not really my people. 
They're not true Jews, whatever their ethnic background is, because they cannot find true life and righteousness in themselves. Instead, they're a synagogue of Satan. They're allies of my great enemy, Jesus says. So don't seek to be like them. Don't turn to them and your persecution. Jesus frees his suffering people from lies and tells them instead to long for him. To long for him. But he frees them from their lies, but he also frees them from their fear. The focus of this passage is obviously suffering that comes from persecution for our faith in Christ. But in our sin-cursed world, suffering comes from so many directions. Our bodies that are aging and becoming ill. Children who are struggling physically or spiritually. Sins that we hate and yet we still turn to. Addictions and the shame that always follows with giving in. And in every kind of suffering comes fear. Fear that it's never going to get better. That the new normal will always be agony. That the addiction is not only stronger than you, but stronger than God. Or at least maybe God doesn't care all that much to do something about it. Fear of further rejection from others. But all the fear that the Smyrnians had and the fear that we share with them come down to this. This central question at the bottom of all the sufferings and at the bottom of the fear is this. What if the longings God has given me are never fulfilled? What if my longing for security and safety for my children and myself is never fulfilled? The Smyrnians felt that longing. And it's a very healthy longing. It's a good thing to want safety and security for yourself and your family. What if my longing for respect that I never seem to feel is never realized? The Smyrnians knew this longing. What if my longing for freedom from sin, in particular this monster sin that seems to follow me like a shadow, what if my freedom never comes? The Smyrnians wanted such freedom just like we do. And because we want to find fulfillment for these longings and so many more, longings that really are in themselves good and healthy and part of being created in God's very own image, we believe lies and we listen to our fears and we seek to meet these longings ourselves, to meet these longings by turning to idols, to meet these longings by telling our prison guards that we're ready to deny our faith and swear to the emperor if we can find safety, if we can avoid pain. To meet those longings by being control freaks with our children and our spouses if we think we'll get security out of it. To meet those longings by losing control of our anger when we don't feel the respect we wish others would give us perfectly. To meet those longings for intimacy and relationship through sexual sin. And in all these things, Jesus comes and he says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He doesn't swoop in and put an end to the hardship and longing. He says, in fact, your longings, they will continue. 
Your struggles and hardship will continue. And in fact, there may be times it will get worse for a while. He tells the Smyrnians it's going to get worse before it gets better. He says, I could be your magic genie and take it all away if I wanted to, but that's not what you need. There's much, much more to life than what you see, and there's much more life that no one has seen except me, and I'm preparing you for that life, the world that I'm remaking. And so he encourages us to trust him, to actually embrace our longings instead of trying to deny them, instead of seeking to run from them, instead of seeking to fulfill them in ways that will destroy ourselves or destroy others. But he says, as you embrace them, do it with hope. Do it with hope. And trust that your longings will be satisfied when I'm done conquering through you. And so this life is us tasting and experiencing Jesus meeting our longings with tastes. Him meeting our longings partially, but not fully, until he returns. Like I said last week, we're in a really good place in life when we are hungering and longing for Jesus, even when we aren't as satisfied with him as we'd like to be. It's still a good place to be. It's still the best place to be. Because the alternatives are so much worse. And Jesus is so kind and he's so patient. He uses the suffering and the persecutions and the struggles with disease and even the sin of his people to test them and to purify them and to produce this holy longing. The reference to the Smyrnian suffering for 10 days in verse 10, it's probably not a literal promise that their hardship will be 10, 24-hour days like so much else in Daniel excuse me, like so much else in Revelation, it's not very literal. Instead, it probably is a reference to Daniel, to Daniel chapter 1, where Daniel and his three friends have been taken by force from their homes and brought to the court of their conqueror, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And they're told to eat the king's food, all of which is unclean food according to Old Testament law. And Daniel and his friends tell the king that they have to refuse his food. But they ask to be fed on vegetables and water for 10 days as a test. And that after 10 days, they expect to be more healthy than those who will eat the king's food. And so Daniel 1 talks about a 10-day long test. And so Jesus' words here to the Smyrnians is that they're to be tested, to be purified, as Daniel and his friends were. He was reminding them of those who are in the faith, who've gone through the same thing they have, who've been tested just as they will be. And that they're to refuse to give in, but to long for him instead. And Jesus tells us the same. Many of you know that Ellen and I, we just got back from a great trip in Europe a couple weeks ago. The first half of the trip was in hotels, but the second half of the trip, we stayed with different missionary families. Some with Mission to the World, which is our denomination's mission agency, and some who are with other groups who are helping to take the good news to Europe. That's the way to do a European vacation. You bum off the missionaries. It's the great secret. 
But staying with these different families, it actually was the most, one of the most encouraging parts of the trip was just listening to their experiences. So spiritually uplifting to see what God was doing in them and through them. I remember one woman in particular telling us how hard it was at first when she first got to the mission field, making the transition from the U.S. to Europe. And at one point she said that she used some of her furlough time, some of her break time back in the States to speak to a pastoral counselor. And she told her counselor here in the States how hard it was to make the transition. A new language and a culture where so many people don't understand you and don't want to understand you and you can't understand them yet. How hard it was to be an outsider. She wondered how God could have planned all of the difficulties she was feeling, the loneliness that she was feeling. But she was missing out. She was missing out on her grandchildren's first steps back in the States, their first birthdays, holiday gatherings with her adult children and her grandchildren. And finally, she said, her counselor, after listening to all this, he he looked at her and he said, so what I've heard you say is that your challenges and your sense of loss have caused you to go to Christ in more fervent prayer, to turn to his word and the good news of his gospel for encouragement, to seek deeper relationships with Christians here because they're your spiritual family and your new home. To see more of your sin, to see more of your insecurities and longings, and to know that Jesus can meet them. Am I hearing you right? She said, yes. And then he said, well, then it seems to me that he's being very good to you. He's being very good to you. But it's a goodness that's difficult and hard to feel and experience. But it is goodness Nonetheless, and I hope I don't forget the lesson that she was teaching me by passing that on from her story, but I will. I will. And Jesus will be faithful to me to call me to increased longing for him and less longing for idols. And he will often use hardship and struggle to do it. And do you know what else Jesus will do for me? And for you and our suffering. He doesn't just call us to long for him. He doesn't just lay a high demand upon us to accept suffering for the sake of his name. He does something else too. He does the same thing for us that he did for the Smyrnians. He joins us in our suffering. So he doesn't just hold out this litmus test. He doesn't just hold out this high bar and say, go meet it, I'll be watching. He comes and he joins us in our suffering. That's what this letter is to the ancient Christians and to us. These are the very words of the one that all his people are suffering for. And these words are comforting if they're received by faith. And as they're received by faith, our eyes are open to see Jesus joining us in our suffering. Truly. This is what he is doing in the first words of the letter and the last words of the letter. Jesus proclaims himself to be the ultimate warrior, the ultimate conqueror, but not in the way the Romans or Americans or Texans would understand. 
He doesn't claim to be like the ones who defeated the Trojans. In verse 8, he says he is the first and the last, meaning that he is eternal, having no beginning, no end. In other words, he's claiming to be God himself. But in the same breath, he also claims to be human. He says that he is the one who suffered, who had longings himself, who longed for righteousness, who longed for justice, who longed to see people be reconciled, to see wars come to an end, to see parents given to orphans, to see the world be made right, and he never did see it during his earthly life. He longed for his father to deliver him from his day of testing, from his agony and torture, but his father didn't. In the story of the Iliad, the Greek army hid themselves in a giant wooden horse, what came to be called the Trojan horse, because it was offered to the Trojans as a peace offering. And the Trojans brought it inside their massive walls, and during the night, the Greeks who were fighting the Trojans came out and opened the gates for the rest of their army, and then they burned Troy to the ground. And in the same way, Jesus entered something else more hideous. He enters the grave itself. He didn't just enter a cursed world because the world wasn't the problem. He entered into the actual curse itself. By having the guilty stains of sin placed upon him at the cross and by entering the curse of death, He went down into the grave, stricken and executed as the guilty criminal that we all are, but he never was. To be the Trojan man, the Trojan human, the man who snuck into death like a spy, like a warrior in the night, knowing exactly what he had planned all along. Just like the Greeks who snuck inside and burned Troy. And when death awoke and realized who it was that stood in its midst, it was too late already. Because this one was not like the millions and millions and millions of men and women and children that it had swallowed before. This Trojan man was also a Trojan god, the god of the universe. In fact, one early father from the 6th century writes this, Jesus who came into the trial of death by his own death, put death to death. By his own death, he goes down into death and then destroys it. And so Jesus says to the Smyrnians and to the Christians who are losing their freedom and their lives in the Middle East and in Asia today, to his children suffering all over the world for a variety of reasons, to you, to us here this morning, That he has conquered. And because he has conquered, he now retraces those same steps of suffering. But this time with his people. So that they can conquer. He brings them down the same path he's already gone himself. But he comes back to go with them through the journey. We conquer just as he did, not by outnumbering, not by outgunning our enemies, not by making them suffer more than we do. Our goal is not to conquer people. Our enemies are much bigger. 
We come seeking the conquering of sin and suffering and death just as he did. But like Jesus, we do it by entering into the heart of suffering and death just as our king did. And he promises us the strength to do so because he's with us. Only a couple of decades after this letter was sent to the Smyrnians, a terrible persecution broke out against the Christians, just as Jesus said that it would. It was just 20 years, maybe, maybe less, after this letter that we read this morning was written. This persecution that Jesus said was coming, it came. We have letters testifying to it. We have a letter written by those Christians who survived and were witnesses of the horrible tortures and executions that took place. It has a long title. It's called the encyclical, which means it's circular. It's it's supposed to travel throughout the churches. The encyclical epistle of the church at Smyrna concerning the martyrdom of Holy Polycarp. Polycarp, who was the leader, the bishop of Smyrna. And Polycarp was a personal disciple of the Apostle John and a leader of the church at Smyrna. The letter describes all kinds of horrible things that the Christians endured. Like many of the stories coming out of the Middle East now that we, we hear about. But in many stories, the crowds who watched it all happen stood amazed as those who were suffering went through their agony, sometimes with joy on their faces. The author of the letter wrote, At the very time when they suffered such torments, they were absent from the body. But then he corrects himself and he says this, Or rather, the Lord then stood by them and communed with them. And so the Lord does with us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father, you have told us again and again in your word from beginning to end, Old Testament and New, that hardship and suffering are a part of this life. And they're a part of this life because they're part of your ultimate plan to destroy those things. And so we thank you, the Lord Jesus has brought death to death, and yet we still wait for it to be full. He's brought death to suffering, and yet we still wait for it to be so. He has stricken the blow against the devil, and yet we wait for him to finally be thrown into the lake of fire. He's done all these things, at the cross, ultimately, and in his resurrection, and yet we still wait. And so, like the church in the song, we cry out, How long? How long will we keep waiting? We don't know how long, and so we do pray, and we do ask that you give us the strength to wait, to suffer, whether it be small or great sufferings. They may be small today and great tomorrow, or great today and small tomorrow, we do not know but we long for you. We long for you to make it right. Keep giving us those longings. Keep giving us a hunger and a taste and a longing for you so we can know that we're right where you have us, so we can know we're right where we're supposed to be. Longing for you and all other things. 
Father, we need you to do this for us and with us. And we thank you that your promises are that you are and you will. And your son is present with us just as he has always been with his children to suffer. And so we pray this week that we would know and taste and commune with him in our hardship. And that in it we will find joy. In it we'll find a joy that outweighs the suffering. Do this for us as you have always done it for your people. In Jesus' name, by the Spirit, amen.